Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Today on The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable, Decision to Leave is a romantic cop thriller, which, yeah, draws upon at least three different Hitchcock sources, plus movies like Sea of Love and Basic Instinct and the two Insomnia movies. But that does not mean that it isn't its own very original thing and certainly beautiful to look at. So we're going to talk about that, and as far as the rest of the show goes, we're still arguing about whether to talk about the death of a famous cracker, the kind you eat, uh, why we're attracted to cop fiction and film and television, something about the Golden Globes, I don't know. We're arguing about what we want to argue about, and that's a good argument in and of itself. Hello, hello, welcome to the news. So, um, first of all, you know, this happens occasionally where, well, let me just sort of back up and also say, and I'm going to break the Severn Sant rule. Severn Sant, who's uh, one of our show's greatest fans and most insightful critics, feels that I should never talk about the emails we send and stuff like that to get ready for the news. But I do anyway. Uh, so what we do is like for days, you know, we're sending emails back and forth and like, what are the topics going to be? I mean, today we knew right away that the movie Dustin, uh, Decision to Leave, uh, <laughs> which I've had a lot of trouble with for about three months, I called that movie Ticket to Ride. Uh, but it's actually Decision to Leave, um, it, which is a Korean romantic thriller uh, in very much of the vein of Hitchcock. We knew that was going to be one of our topics. And then we had to try to figure out what the other topics are. And it's not like we didn't have any ideas. We had a lot of ideas. But sometimes it's like, you know, people don't really just coalesce behind any particular set of ideas. So um, so that's what's happened today. And, I mean, three of my absolute favorite panelists are on, so I'm quite confident that we'll have a very interesting conversation about something. James Haley is with us, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. Helder Mira is a multimedia producer at Trinity College and co-host of the So Pretentious podcast with Vivian Nabetta. Uh, Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, and dancer. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because she she described how she's sort of she's apparently dressed in full Jennifer Coolidge today while we're doing yes. the show. She's she's gone full Coolidge uh, to get her. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't really get that picture out of my head right now. Uh, she's founder, <laughs> director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. Uh, so they're all with us. And so I want to begin not with the Golden Globes because, frankly, I didn't watch the Golden Globes. But the Golden Globes happened this year after not having happened last year. Um, and one of the charms of the Golden Globes is that they're so discredited. <laughs> and it's you know kind of a bunch of rich, drunk celebrities. Uh, and that nobody has to be nice about the whole thing. And, and Gerard Carmichael, who was hosting, just started out on the most perfect note of just <laughs> tearing the whole organization to shreds and saying, I loved this in particular, that he refused to go to the meeting he was supposed to go to with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association to talk about you know, the plan for the show. Uh, and he said, I figured at this point I was unfireable. Uh, and so, so he didn't go. But here's what it made me think about. It, and I, I'd love to talk to the panelists about this, is that 
I, one thing I've realized, realized about myself recently is I don't really love constant celebrations of things that don't have any possible capacity for self-reflection. Um, I, I feel that way in my own job. Like I don't go to, I don't particularly like meetings where we all just rah rah about everything that we've done that's so great, and we don't really talk about anything that went wrong. And I think you know at this time of year. The Screen Actors Guild nominations just came out, I think, yesterday. Directors Guild came out uh, sometime this week. We've got Golden Globes. We're heading for the Oscars. There's lots of other. There's New York Critics Circle. You know, but most of these things are just awards. You get them and you get up there and you thank everybody until they play you off stage and that's it. And, and I was thinking, like, most of the time here, what we do is we often talk about movies that are really good, but there's – something wrong with them, you know, something that may be presented. I am going to say when we get to decision uh, to uh, whatever it's called, decision to leave, that I think this is that Hitchcock would have cut 20 or 30 minutes out of this movie and it would be a classic. People would go and watch it over and over again. But that's me. That's how I feel about it, you know. But I feel we often feel that way, that there's something better that could be done, you know, so that you could take a movie and, and you could fix it up. And then, so I have this idea for the wrongies where we would have this ca- this award ceremony for movies that are basically good, but they made a really bad casting decision. There'd be a bad casting decision category. There'd be a director should have hired a screenwriter category. I'm looking at you, Ryan Johnson, uh, and you, Todd Field, probably as well, uh, that there's definitely going to be a too long category uh, and, and stuff like that. So I threw this out to the panel. And, you know, James, I didn't hear back from you on this, but I'm really interested to hear how you feel about this because you love movies so much. But I have to feel that the kind of almost blindly celebratory quality of most of these award ceremonies isn't really what you're in the game for. Right. I, I, I think that they are, you know, they're sort of becoming spectacles that are kind of divorced from movies generally or or sort of real movie life, if you like. I mean, the film industry is in all kinds of going in all kinds of directions now. And um, there are a lot of films being made by people who are not well known. They're coming from places where we haven't seen films before. And the whole sense of a uh, an awards thing. I mean, I think your description of the Golden Globes is a very good one. I mean, I, I enjoyed like, for instance, Jennifer Coolidge was really great. She had the right attitude about it. It was sort of an unpretentious sort of, in a way, putting in its place, putting it in its place. And um, the, of course, the, the the that particular awards, but generally awards have all kinds of problems going on now that 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 really highlighted being a kind of entertainment that exists on some distant planet from the movies that people are actually watching. And I mean, I love to go and watch movies in theaters, of course, and see them on a big screen. But the fact is that there are many, many movies coming out now that you can't always get to see them on the big screen because they go through so quickly. And so um, the the whole award thing, um, I, I think the idea of a wrongies is actually, it, that's kind of a great idea because Another aspect of filmmaking is that because of the inexpensive nature of digital filmmaking, there's an awful lot of dreck out there. And a lot of these people, they might have one bright idea, but then they make a film, you know, four hours long or something and ruin it. They need some somebody, you know, some sort of mechanism really for getting people <laughs> up to speed on what people will sit for and what you're talented with and what you're not talented with. 
Right. I mean, and I feel like, let me just stay with you for a second, James. Like, you know, you take a movie like Tar, which, I mean, Kate Blanchett is so dispositively going to win the Best Actor Award and a lot of, you know, or Best Actress, I guess it is, award. Uh, and, I mean, Michelle Yeoh's acceptance speech at the Golden Globes is basically, this is the only one I'm going to win. Blanchett's got the rest of them, so let me talk for a while. Uh, and, you know, so it's it's got that and it's got some other things going for it. And there are people who really love it, think it's the best movie of the year. I talk to a lot of people who really hate it. But I also sort of look, you know, James, at the screenwriting credit. I go, oh, Todd, you wrote this in addition to directing it. Did it occur to you to have somebody come in and punch up the script a little bit or maybe just ask you some questions, you know, about motivation and character and stuff like that? And and yeah. that's that's sort of what I think about with the wrongies. It's kind of I mean, I don't know who would go and accept these awards. Not the people who did these things. Probably some editor they didn't hire, you know, would, would go up and get the award. But I just feel exactly what you're saying, James. I'm, I feel so close to loving so many movies. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I feel that way, too. And I, I, I think that, like in the case of Tar, for example, it's almost like it's a purist vision that he had. And he wasn't going to listen to anybody um, beyond maybe uh, Kate Blanchett herself, you know, <laughs> that maybe that that they had some conversations. But you you have this feeling that, that there's a... Um, uh, an impenetrable quality to actually making modifications. And I think this has shown up in so many ways with so many different kinds of film. You're talking about films that are too long, scriptwriters who don't know how to tie the story together or who don't know how to conclude films that end, you know, five times. You're, you're, you're really getting to the end of it and thinking, please make this time be the one. And, and you get the feeling they haven't had that conversation. And I think Todd didn't have that conversation. And Tar, I love Tar actually, but it is a film that it could have been more spare in a way, but it also needed to have a, get in touch with her human quality, mm. which I don't think it really did. Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of a joylessness that pervades it uh, a lot of the time that I don't think is even really true to the spirit of you know, orchestral music. But I, I get, get other people. I love. Like James just several things James just said, like an, an impenetrable quality to making modifications or whatever that was. That should that should be a category in the wrongies. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. anyway, um, so Carolyn, obviously you would be the host of the wrongies. Um, <laughs> you're so uh, you're so ready. You've been preparing your whole life to host the wrongies. But so give us some of your thoughts about even maybe which awards you would really look forward to handing out. Yeah, I would be perfect for this because I think most movies go wrong for me. Um, in fact, it's like more of a celebration for me to find something that hasn't uh, done me dirty, to be honest. Um, I, I think for me, a big uh, editing is just so key. Why are these movies like almost three hours long? Like, why is this a thing that we are suffering through and allowing and, and celebrating? Um, I think that most movies need an editor who just comes in and is like, nope, this is, we need to take out like an hour of this movie and then maybe it's watchable. Um, so I definitely think that uh, that that would be a main category for me. Also, uh, writing. I, I When I was like thinking about this, and the interesting thing was, is I couldn't even like pinpoint a specific movie that does this, but um it happens a lot. We all know it. I, I just couldn't come up with one off the top of my head is where there's like a bad plot device in the middle of the movie that, you know, they just 
they, they, they started writing one way and have to take a turn and need to move on because they're trying to be mindful about the fact that the movie's already three hours long. Right. As you're, spe- they- as you're speaking, I'm actually having a thought, which is that, you know, one, there's several w- ways in which you know that the movie Mank, is that what it's called? Pants Mank? You, yeah. you know that it's a period piece. First of all, it's a black and white. That's a, but, but it's also, it's all about like getting somebody to write something, you know, <laughs> like, God, are we going to get him out of his bed so he can write this movie? You know, <laughs> you could make that movie today. Nobody cares. <laughs> right. So, like, about Steven Spielberg dragging Tony Kushner. I mean, which he he did, and he should do. But like, writing is such a deglamorized. It was always a deglamorized profession. But even the idea of Mank, which is that behind the scenes, Orson Welles really needs this guy. I I, I feel like I would just, equate it with the adaptation where we get to watch like uh, uh, Nicolas Cage as two twins uh, trying to write. A screenplay about a white or- oleander. <laughs> okay, was that, a white orchid? I forget which white one. orchid. Yeah, that was very, that was very complicated. What you just did there, but but we got it. We're, we're with you. So very yes, good, yeah. I just Charlie Kaufman did. What do you want? Yeah, you, you, speaking you, of writers, you Charlie Kaufman did. So so Helder, how about you? You love movies too, uh, but I'm guessing just watching person after person be celebrated uh, is a little. Yeah, you go to movies to think about movies. I mean, I. One of the top movies that comes to mind is one that I would have really loved and wanted to love, which was the Batman, which, you know, I've been on this show plenty of times to talk about comic books and comic book movies. And it's just like, I was so looking forward to it. And it is like so overlong, so tediously long, so like pretentious in the, in trying to make this like grand epic about the bat and it just becomes this drag down thing where I'm just like, we don't need to see Batman walk across the screen for five minutes to get to the bad guys to whoop their butts. It's like, why is this taking so long? Where is the editor in this? And, you know, I expect better from Matt Reeves, who's a great director and a great writer. And also could use another writer. Cause I'm like, what is going on half the time in this movie? And I actually like the movie, but I, I'm like in the same boat as James and Carolyn and you where it's just like, all right, we need to like streamline some of this, but then you get, you know, classic historic issues where you get the Magnificent Ambersons, which could have been a wonderfully beautiful epic for, wells that got taken away from him by the producers and got edited by some random editor who just said just cut an hour out and they're like where and he said anywhere like it doesn't matter just cut things down and you get the mess that it turns into so it's right and then of course today what would happen is wells would be able to release the five-hour version uh to blu-ray or something <laughs> or, orson uh, wells magnificent amberson i would actually like yeah, no, you, that for, yes yes along people. with Zack snyder yes so james another category that i would have in my wrong east which doesn't fit the rest of the categories but it's just too great not to have it is the anticipatory dread category uh in, in which i would currently put megalopolis which i think didn't Coppola like sell his vineyards or something <laughs> so he could make this movie? And apparently, like he fires the art department every couple of days. And like Adam Driver had to write a little open letter to Deadline.com saying, "Oh no, it's not that bad." <laughs> On the script. I mean, some movies you start to get excited about because it seems like they're already coming unglued while they're being made. Well, I think there are there are so many, many examples of that. And I think part of it is driven by ANSI investors who now are able to communicate and follow every minute detail of what's going on. And they can they can also pressure the studio or the producers. And you you really have the influence of a lot of people who are not really aware of the film. They're not skilled 
they it's like the opposite of the, the problem with editing and writing you've got a lot of people who are driven by other things than making a good story and when you compare it with films you know sort of that are tightly made by somebody who had a vision somebody like hitchcock who did a storyboard with uh and, and knew exactly what shots he was going to do and comes in you know with 90 minutes or or or, or maybe a hundred minute film that is very tight and it's his vision and he has made that and he has been trusted to do that in a sense by the investors the studio at that time but now um, there are so many investors who are involved in the conversation who have no idea what's going on other than worrying about will they get their money on, on Saturday morning after the Friday opening. And, and it leads to these impossible situations where you get publicists who are trying to steer the conversation, trying to steer the impression of the film. And the publicists don't even know. They've been hired, you know, like on Monday to do something for Tuesday, and they don't even know what the film's about. But they're they're, they're trying to create an impression about the film that might, might make more, more people interested in it. Right. There's a huge controversy going on these days, too, about trailers and how misleading trailers can be. And there's people wanted to sue about a movie that was supposed to have Ana de Armas in it. And she got cut out of the movie. <laughs> yes, <laughs> actually, they, they didn't want to. They did. Yeah. They sued. Well, they, did sue, yeah. Dist- they did sue. Yeah, that came out last week. I'm trying to remember the movie. Um, uh, but yeah, so, uh, you know, the, the, we're going to have to wrap this up fairly soon. But but Carolyn. You know, when James talks, I always feel like, first of all, he's so smart about all this stuff and he knows so much more about it than than I do. But I often find think, like I was just thinking, maybe there's like no really good way to make a movie. <laughs> either either it's in the hands of bean counting investor venture capitalist jerks, you know, who, who are going to be looking at dailies, you know, on their laptops and having all kinds of ideas about them. Or you've got Woody Allen, who spent his entire life making sure that can't happen to him. But now, like, nobody can send David Steinberg over there to say, you know what? Let's just punch this scene up a little bit, all right? Let's just find, let's find a beat here that, where there's a joke, you know, that really kind of sells this scene. Um, and I, so I feel like there's just no way to make a good movie. I, well, there are a lot of movies out there that argue that your point is correct. Mm. But there are enough really good ones that I think it's just the perfect storm. You have to have a good team, like a movie, making a movie is a, that is a group project where everyone has to be, uh, and all the stars have to align, uh, where, where it it can happen. But I just think like, yes, odds are most of the time you're going to fail horribly and you're going to end up getting a wrongy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I've been on plenty of movies that deserve wrongies. Let me tell you that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So I just got um, a note from the uh, producer of the show, who's also the technical producer of the show today, and it says "Crackers After Carolyn," uh, which is actually <laughs> it, it's actually that's the name of a screwball com- comedy from like '52, right? Uh, Rosalind Russell. Yes. So "Crackers After Carolyn." Yeah. Carolyn. Yeah. So, um, so we're supposed to talk. Crackers about- is also a John Waters character. That's true. Well, also there was just this great moment. We we did a show a couple of days ago about late night comedy, and uh, um, you'll love this, James uh, Amber Ruffin, who's this exciting new African American co- comedic host, uh, was interviewing John Oliver, and it was right after Christmas, and she was asking him about British Christmas, and he said a few things about it, very funny things about it. Then she said, "And you also have the crackers." Uh, and he looked at her and he goes, "That's a word we can use, but you can't say that," uh, which I thought. 
I thought was terrific. <laughs> uh, anyway, no, we're going to talk about a different kind of crackers, stone wheat thins. Uh, so stone wheat thins are going to be discontinued. But stone wheat thins, just to contextualize them, to remind you, they're like perfectly square and they have a little bit of salt on them. And they don't have too much flavor, so you can put the brie on them, you know, and they're not going to compete with the brie. And they've been just sort of this staple of, like, you're throwing some cheese out with some crackers. People are over. You didn't really work too hard on the hors d'oeuvres, you know. But you know you're going to be okay if the cheese is okay. And they're just being discontinued. And 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 I just <laughs> – I don't understand. Helder, this was a really good cracker. Where? Why did it go away? You're asking the guy that didn't actually read the article on this one, aren't no, you? No, I'm just asking you to do that sort of like, you know, I'm gonna intuitively. Say that, uh, intuit why that. Intu- intuit, I, I think the stoned wheat thins. There's so many crackers out there now. Like, you know, we're all white. Well, what, who cares? It's like I, like all these plain crackers. The stoned wheat just feels like uh, it sucks. <laughs> it does uh, suck because it's a great It's, it's a, a great, great cracker. cracker. Let me just say also that they are they're the remaining stoned wheat thins. I almost don't need to tell anybody this are now for sale on eBay for $2,500 a box, uh, according to the article that we read. And I, I really resonated to that because when my partner was in the hospital, we had, we had to do this kind of big clean-out of part of the house, and we put a couple of rugs outside while we were doing the clean-out, and they got rained on, they got wrecked. And they turned out to be these Susan Sargent rugs, and they're pretty good rugs, and not only that, but Susan Sargent stopped making them. So I now, like I had to get her a Susan Sargent rug for Christmas. Like I had to find one. And if anybody's listening right now, if you have a Susan Sargent rug in your house, I will buy it right now, sight unseen. (laughs) I'm working off my moral debt. So that's what happens when you take something away and you don't make them anymore. But Carolyn, you say that you feel like your whole life is marked by the discontinuation of foods that you may or may not have cared about. Well, I mean, I'm still mourning the high C uh, ecto cooler that <laughs> dropped off the market like 30 years ago. Um, but so as far as uh, stone wheat, whatever these crackers are, I actually hate them and I am not sorry to see them go. They fall in that same category to me as like, um, as uh, oh, that other cracker that like always they just cut up the roof of your mouth. They're a very aggressive cracker. Like I understand <laughs> that they are a good facilitator for cheeses because they're like flavorless. But they, they just are, they're too, they're too hard and sharp. So I feel like we're going to be fine without them. We, we have better things that don't destroy. Did you like sue Nabisco about this or something? Is this why this is happening? <laughs> because you're What palate- I want to know is why, why does it say imported on the box? Like where is it imported from? Right. That's the question. All right. Like- James, you have the floor now. <laughs> well, I think that it's obviously, it's obviously a plot by a huge European conglomerate that wants to manipulate the American market. And it's all about uh, shelf space. And probably they're going to introduce a new kind of cracker with seven different variations so that they can push other products off the off, off the shelf. I mean, I feel indifferent about that particular cracker, but I do think that, you know, people get attached to these things. So I understand how upset people get. But I mean, if if I go to the supermarket and I can't get a particular thing, I say, okay, well, they probably moved on, and uh, it, it it then becomes the the whole uh, the whole thing becomes about fantasies online and the apparent <laughs> willingness of people to part with huge amounts of money for nothing. One of the great like reviews that's on Amazon right now is that it tasted like soap cleaner. 
So uh, it's anonymous. I mean, Carolyn, was that you? Did you go and drop a review in the last few minutes to say it was? No, I was legally advised not to do that. Right. It would affect her lawsuit about her yeah. her injured upper palate. Um, so I'm also being told by the technical producer and the producer of this episode, who are the same person today, that we cannot go to our break without Carolyn, Carolyn talking about um about Pastina. I just want to say to James, every, we're all just living in internet fantasies right now. I mean, just, you know, there's no possibility that everything that we do isn't either engaging in or responding to an internet fantasy. That ship is like so sailed. Uh, but I get your point too. Uh, all right. So uh, Pastina, I don't even know what Pastina is. And I cook a lot. What is it? Okay. So Pastina is that, that little tiny star pasta that yep. really like what are you going to use it for well, i mean yeah. it's adorable Soup. it's it's Soup. like the twee pasta it's this little these little stars but anyway i was at big y just this week and i was in the pasta aisle and some woman turns to me unsolicited and said you know they're getting rid of pastina so if you like it you should buy it which of course incited a panic in me and caused me to buy two boxes of pastina which i don't even know i i've never in my life used pastina but the thought of not being able to have it made me need to buy it because i was like well it's cute little stars like i'm sure i'll find a recipe and i could never have it again well, then, that was my soup growing up was pastina. My mom would always use pastina because of the little stars. Yeah, I've since so. found I'm out. Come in your house soon, Carolyn. You, well, you can get 20 bucks a box for them just on the basement. You just, I hope you still have them. Well, Somebody I, wants I them. Upsell. But then I found out from Jonathan in emailing today when talking about foods getting canceled, um, I mentioned pastina and my uh, need to binge buy it because I thought it was going away. Um, he corrected me. It is not, it's only one brand of pastina is being discontinued. Apparently Barilla will be continuing to make pastina. So there is no pastina shortage or crisis. Um, so no one needs to be eBaying pastina despite whatever um, chaos that woman at Big Y was trying to cause. Well, and I think I have to give the conch shell back to James now because I do feel like that the shot in this movie where the woman turns to Carolyn in the in the aisle at Big Y and says, "You won't be able to get these anymore." And then Carolyn buys two boxes of something she doesn't even want. It's, that's the James <laughs> Hanley, is. isn't that the James Hanley critique of capitalism? You know, uh, in a ninety second scene. Exactly. I think it was a great scene, Carolyn. I think this is this is perfect for you, and I think that. I can just see the script now, but I, I don't think it's going to make it to 90 minutes. I think <laughs> I think we're probably talking about, you know, maybe a 15 minute short, but yeah. it'll be a, it'll be a hit. Believe me. It's called Crackers Before Carolyn. Right. No, there you are. Perfect. No, well, okay. yeah. No, that was the original working title. And then some people <laughs> from Warner got on the phone and said, no, it's going to be called White Noise, too. Uh, <laughs> can, I, can I co-produce? Yes, absolutely. Carolyn is going back to the supermarket, and this time Adam <laughs> Driver's not there. Uh, all right, we're going to take a little break. We'll come back. We're going to talk about uh, a very, very interesting movie, uh, Decision to Leave. Sorry I said the things I did. It was a silly fight. I was wrong, you were right. What I really mean to say Crackers in my bed anytime, baby. You can kick off all the covers in the middle of the night. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. 
Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we're back. I'm back with James Handley, Heldra Mira, and Carolyn Payne. Decision to Leave is the 11th feature uh, by the director Park Chan-wook. Um, it's written by Park and Zhang Xiaokang. See? Park, you got a screenwriter. You got somebody to come in and work on this. Um, so, uh, and we should say that uh, Park is uh, probably best known for movies like The Handmaiden and Old Boy. Uh, and I'm sure Helder and James have seen all, you know, 10 of the preceding movies. But Carolyn and I haven't. So, um, this is a, a, a romantic thriller. Uh, it is unabashedly, or maybe abashedly, in the vein of Hitchcock. Um, uh, I would say that at minimum, uh, we're seeing a Vertigo, Rear Window, uh, and Marnie, <laughs> at minimum, uh, plus some elements of movies like Sea of Love and Basic Instinct and the Insomnia movies. and uh, They're all in there somehow, but this manages, I think, to be different and original. So uh, let's get going. Let's get talking about it. Uh, James, you should probably get us going uh, on this movie. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing up on the screen. Well, I was probably, I think, most uh, most excited by its visual style. Uh, it, it really swept me up and kept me going. I, I do agree a little bit about the length of it. It could have been a bit shorter, but uh, the actual nature of the film, it has such an air of confidence about telling the story. It's a story of great complexity that I couldn't tease out all the details, but it's extraordinary in its transitions from one part of the story to another that actually seems to take the inner the inner voice of a character and suddenly make that a scene. And then visually, the sense of using the camera, the widescreen camera, this particular case, um, in a very assured way with deep focus and then flat focus. And then the next minute, the angle changes in a, a very inventive way. It just uh, it it has a sort of virtuosic quality that instantly got my attention, and I felt really drawn into it. And um, you can see elements of other filmmakers, but this is a really talented uh, filmmaker, I think, who actually has the talent to carry the structure of a film. I think obviously there were other people who worked on the film, but this has a really sort of individual stamp about the way the story is told and the visual quality of it. And I would say that the only thing would be this issue of length again, that there needs to be somebody who actually sits in a theater and with the director and watches the film and actually maybe talks about actually creating the atmosphere in a spare manner that that, that doesn't make you feel, okay, 
it's been two hours now. We need to end this kind of thing, which is unfortunate because this is a brilliant film, I think. They should just have like a hologram of Jack Warner or something, you know, like put it in there, sit next to the director. All right, you got to fix that. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, James, while you have the floor, too, I just wanted to see. I'm not I'm really stunted, I think, when it comes to really a pre- I, like I, I know this is a great looking movie. I wouldn't be able to explain why as articulately and expertly as you just did. But I had one thought afterwards, and I wondered whether I was even right about it. But we, I should, we should say that the movie is about this kind of repressed cop with insomnia. He's got a marriage that's you know has no real spark going on in it. In it. And then very much in the vein of a lot of other movies, he's investigating a death, and the wife of the dead guy is either a person of interest or not. Uh, but he winds up in that kind of dance that we've seen before uh, with this woman. Is she a victim? Is she bereaved? Is she dangerous? Is she the doer, as they would say in Sea of Love? Um, and one thing I thought, uh, James, was that this actress, Tong Wei, is amazing. And she's yes. amazing because you can't figure her out and you really, really want to. And Correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like there aren't a lot of close-ups of her. She's. I feel. I feel like she's usually shot in these kind of medium field shots. You know, where at minimum, like her upper torso would be, you know, fully uh, in, in right. the frame. And so I found myself kind of leaning forward, saying, "I, I want to see more of her face." And I think he I, intentionally won't let us do that. Exactly. I think that she's made kind of mysterious, but she breaks through that because she has such charisma. But the actual visual noting of her, the, her, her scenes are are sort of truncated or angular. And there's another thing, too, that uh, the, there's a curious thing going on with language that she she is supposedly from China and uh, she doesn't feel confident when she's describing precisely what she wants to say in uh, Korean. And so she uses a phone translation to 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 play that translation and it provides it. It sort of makes once removed from her and increases the mystery about her. Um, but she has this extraordinary charisma that breaks through all of it. And she's just a, an amazing find. And I, I happen to be watching the new series on Netflix uh, at the same time of uh, Elena Ferranti's story, The Lying Lives of Adults. And the the main character in that sort of has that same quality. She's like, you're you're totally drawn in and you're wondering, what makes her tick? What is she doing? And you really care about it. And it makes it a, a fascinating journey to follow. And um, in Decision to Leave, she really is, she's like a vortex in the film that by the end of it, she's really drawn everything to her. You know, she she makes Kim Novak look like a rel- relatively solvable puzzle. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, Carolyn, you know, James touched upon one thing I wanted to talk uh, about, which is, you know, it really is such an updated romantic thriller in the role that technology plays. You know, it's not being written on pieces of parchment, It's but it's like, yes, that whole translation device where she talks, speaks Chinese into her phone and then holds up the phone. Sometimes there's a male voice saying the Korean <laughs> translation, but there's also these Dick Tracy watches where they're like recording conversations and uh, and translating those conversations sometimes and you know, a lot of texting, which goes on in all movies uh, these days, it seems. But I really felt like, oh, this is Hitchcock, but, you know, post Steve Jobs. Yeah, I mean, so this movie, I had a lot of 
concerns um, about watching this movie. Um, I, I I couldn't didn't get a chance. I wasn't going to get to it till very late last night. I will admit I started it last night late and fell asleep. Um, but then this morning when I sat down to watch it, I was fully engaged in it. Um, it's interesting watching something where you have to rely. I'm somebody who watches like everything with subtitles on. Um, I especially like horror movies, I feel, and movies like this that tend to be quiet. Like even if it was in English, I'd want subtitles. But it's interesting. I hadn't watched a movie that I needed to use the subtitles to, you know, be following the plot in a long time and or anything like that. And it engages you in a whole different way. You have to be very um you know, committed to watching it. Like if you glance down at your phone, you've lost track of what's happening. And then you look back up and they're like talking into a Dick Tracy watch and you're like, wait, are we in the future? I don't know what's happening. So I found that I had to focus on this in a whole different way that normally I do not actually focus on things. Um, And I was really captivated by this movie visually and by the performances and the actors. And um, I really... Helder had told me that it had this very like Hitchcock vibe and that made me, that kind of like soothed me into watching it. I was like, all right, this won't be so bad, but it really was kind of this like Hitchcock in the technical age. And I I, I mean, visually it is so, there are so many moments. I, I never say this about a movie, but I actually wonder if watching it again, if there are all these little like clues or little pieces left along the way that I would find uh, cause I feel like this kind of director and this cinematography is just so clever and it's such a plot device in itself. Um, you know, I, 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 this is totally a rewatchable movie. Yeah, uh, it's almost a yeah. mandatory rewatchable movie. And I mean, the other thing is, of course, you were watching it uh, with your Jennifer Coolidge pink house coat with the marabou sleeves. And, you know, it's like in a whole different state of mind, I think. Than you, it is you so scary how close to that you just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, but I want you to know, apropos of the movie, I'm not parked outside your house with binoculars right now. Okay. okay. Yikes. <laughs> that is not happening. That's not how I know something like that. So, you know, Helder, since she mentioned that and she mentioned that you mentioned that, I do want to say you know, one thing that drives me crazy is so he, he was interviewed about all this. Um, Park was interviewed about all this. And he said, well, yeah, you know, Hitchcock was really in a lot of ways the, one of the things that made me want to be a director. But I wasn't really thinking about Vertigo while I was making this. In fact, I... You know, I didn't really think about it until there were some American reviews that mentioned it. Oh, BS. And I think exactly. Come on. You mean at the, I, end, at the so, end of a 48-hour so shoot when you're on top of some cliff with this dizzying shot and it's a cop who's up there who's not sure about the woman he's in love with? You never <laughs> thought about Vertigo Park, please. Not even you. that scene. I, there's also, The other scene that strikes me the most as Vertigo-esque um, is the scene where they – there's this great, beautiful scene where the two actually kind of go on this day, t- day date and are walking around almost like the scene in Vertigo when um, James or Jimmy Stewart uh, takes Kim Novak to the Redwood Forest and they're kind of walking through and talking and having this kind of teasing conversation. And that scene just to me was evocative. Of, uh, the scene in Indecision to Leave was evocative of that, of this like he's this cat and mouse type of game where they're trying to like He's trying to get some information from her, but at the same time, still flirting with her and all that goes into that. Um, so there's like so many little elements. I mean, obviously we mentioned uh, uh, Rear Window as well with, and you just alluded to it by spying on Carolyn that, you know, there's <laughs> that whole beautiful sequence of him, like following her and like, you see what he's seeing. 
but there's this great moment of like these moments where he like inserts the character into the scene. The cinematography is just absolutely wonderful. Like the, and keeping with that idea of like how they keep her distant from the viewer, there's these great scenes in the interrogation where you have him in foreground, both of them in foreground, but he's in focus and then she's in focus, but only in the mirror. And they play with that quite a bit and very, very subtly, which again, one of the reasons why I'd love to go back and see and just see, just examine the cinematography for that, especially for that last, I'm not going to blow the ending, but like the final scene is just gorgeously shot. Yeah. And right. It really makes you want to go to Korea too. Uh, I mean, except this, for, uh, you know, all that, like, uh, Overcast and well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> also, like if, if The Exorcist had been shot in Korea, nobody would be able to figure out where those stairs were that the director <laughs> falls down and then that are key to the end of The Exorcist. Because every there's like six places in every city apparently that look like where Jason Miller could have gotten killed. <laughs> it's like I don't know. Yeah, maybe it was here. Maybe it was down the street. Uh, it all kind of looks like this. So James, I'm going to hand the conch shell back to you, and uh, I think we're going to have to wrap this segment up pretty soon. So just talk about whatever you're thinking about right now. Well, I was just thinking, you know, talking about, you know, his interview where he wasn't particularly, you know, like acknowledging anything about Vertigo. I think that what you're dealing with here is somebody who is clearly a movie nut who watches lots of movies. And it's partly the, probably the seeing Vertigo, but it's not specific. What it is, is seeing lots of stuff and being you know, determined to watch as much as you can. And it permeates your sense of how you tell a story, I think, and how you have a visual sense. And and I think that's something that um, there are, it seems that this particular movie is a throwback to a kind of movie that is a personal work of somebody who worked with a good team of writers and, and, and actors and who had a vision for the movie that was based on an experience of great length uh, of watching many, many movies and had developed the, the skill with the language, if you like, the visual language and the mm -hmm. storytelling language. And so comes to a point where they can make a very special type of film. It's not a film made by a committee. It's not driven by investors. It's not something coming from the, you know, a tent pole from a, a big studio. This is something that is a throwback in a way to the kind of vision that Hitchcock had with all of its quirks and creepy parts, too. Yeah, actually, I, I wanted to sort of bring up one last thing. And Caroline, I think uh, you and I are the perfect people to talk about this because there's a lot of a lot of the things about this movie that James and, and Helder, I think, love and justifiably love are also a little bit. I, I don't know about you, but I was occasionally there's sort of moments where there's a scene shift or a time shift that's completely unannounced. It's just kind of done through a jump cut. Uh, or there's also this device where somebody kind of is put into a room that he wasn't really in on a kind of fantasy basis. What if I were sitting right next to her watching all of that happen? But you're just sort of expected to figure out what's going on. And a couple of times I would be, are we in Ebo now? Where are we? And is he, was he really in that room or is this kind of a fantasy dream kind of thing? And I don't know. I, I'm getting, maybe it's the age I'm at right now. I just want like big letters on the screen saying this was three weeks ago and it's in a different city now. Well, I, I told you, I had a really focus on this movie because, I mean, if I glanced away for a second, I was lost and it's three hours long. You don't want to have to be rewinding and adding time onto this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think once I got used to like what was happening, um, like those earlier scenes where there was a character in a room who wasn't there, 
once I became, that's why I said, this is oddly a movie that I kind of think you need to see a second time to really put together a lot of the stuff that's there and digest it. Um, I mean, cause like you have to, there's sort of a learning curve with this movie. I agree with that. You, you're the, the director is sort of ahead of you and you're trying to, and, and the writing, you, you are sort of running to catch up with what is, what techniques are being used and what, um, how they're telling this story. All right, we have so, to stop there. By the way, the movie is two hours and 20 minutes. Don't be uh, too scared away. Um, <laughs> okay, but, all right. So, <laughs> a slight exaggeration. Right. Give, it took three uh, hours yeah. for me. Give it a chance. It really is such a visually rich movie, and it really does have a lot of the things that we do love about uh, Hitchcock. So it's Decision to Leave. You can rent it for $3.99 from Amazon Prime. At least I could. All right, time to say thank you. As I say, it can be brief because the technical producer today is also the producer. Jonathan McPants is in uh, the booth after having uh, produced the entire episode. Also, I'd just like to say Kevin Costner couldn't be with us today because he, he didn't feel like coming. That's a Golden Globes joke. Oh, like, like, Regina Hall had to get up and say, I, you know, like Kevin Costner I think, lives. He could have ridden one of the horses from Yellowstone to this to this ceremony. <laughs> It's just like, how yeah, did he win? That's I, what I wanted. I'm good. I'm fine. Uh, all right. So time to make some recommendations. Uh, and Helder, since I just heard your voice, you can get us started here. Uh, so in lieu of watching Yellowstone with Kevin Costner, I would like to push for and uh, recommend one of his, um, one of the other people that was nominated, which was Diego Luna in Andor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was a fantastic Star Wars, uh, going back to Ryan Johnson being referenced earlier and, and really good writing and also like overly long. Uh, but it's worth it. So Andor on Disney Plus and the other show I wanted to push was uh, thanks to you guys. I got introduced to Slow Horses. Season two just wrapped on Apple TV and just as good as the first one, uh, first season, still continuing to like uh, build a lot of tension and spy in the spy world post-Cold War and a lot of fun for that. So. Yeah. Andor kind of went cliffhanger at the end of its season too, although I, that's like the worst cliffhanger I've ever seen. Anybody who thinks that you know one of them is going to shoot the other one is completely wrong um <laughs> all right so uh spoiler um, alert well i didn't say who i didn't say who uh <laughs> oh. um all right so uh carolyn uh why don't you go next um all right i recently uh watched in one sitting the show inside man on netflix oh yeah it's uh stanley tucci and david Tennant, and uh that actress i think her name is dolly wells yes, yes. the british actress and writer, um, this show is pretty spectacular. It is like a high octane law and order kind of vibe. Uh, it's really well written. Obviously, like Stanley Tucci just delivers David Tennant. Um, I don't even want to kind of go into what it's about. It's just really worth watching uh, if you're looking for a good crime mystery thriller kind of thing. Um, the last episode will really just like leave you like you're just like shaking the whole time with the anxiety of it. Uh, but it's really, it's good. It's a really good binge watch. Highly recommend. 
I, I can sort of uh, co-endorse that. Uh, and okay, I'm pulling up the wrong thing. Okay, I, I'm mad at myself because I can't think of the name of the guy, and I actually shouted him out on this show a little while ago. But there's a, this rather large African American man who's Atkins Estimon. There he is. He, <laughs> you know, you don't steal a lot of scenes from Stanley Tucci, no. particularly when Stanley Tucci has already been handed a scenery chewing part to begin with. But that guy, you know, like a lot of times you just wait waiting for Stanley to shut up. So that guy could say something funny. You so know. he was in um, that show. Um, it was set in P Town, High Town. Mm-hmm. It was a show like a. It was another crime show. Uh, I think it was on HBO like a couple years ago, and he was the scene stealer in that show as well. And I recognized him immediately in this. Uh, he is truly brilliant. He's and my High he, Town is a great show yeah, too. He's my favorite thing on Inside Man. All right, uh, James Hanley, uh, you uh, are going to help wrap things up here. Okay, um, just another quick mention of Elena Ferranti's story, Lying Adults, on Netflix. That's a really amazing. I think it's six parts. Um, but also uh, a book I just picked up that uh, I think has been out for about a year by a writer named Amitav Ghosh, that's G-H-O-S-H, called The Nutmeg's Curse, which is a fascinating history of uh, of the world, really, uh, how we're at the, space, at the place we are with the planet and the whole nature of uh, what happened with colonialism and theft and 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 conquest uh, and and the nutmeg is a significant part of it and of course the nutmeg is a, a theme in Connecticut for different reasons um the amitav gosh the nutmeg's curse and then lastly um i wanted to give a recommendation for aurora's cafe on capitol avenue uh, for three ninety nine, I think it is, which is a great place to go for breakfast or lunch, and uh, it's a, the food is great. All right, that's all just terrific, and thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, I have less to to. Uh, I feel like I've had a very stressful week where I haven't been doing things that have led to some recommendations, but I did find one thing that I really um, liked a lot, and it's it's a little bit dated, but not too much. It's a podcast. It's called American Rattle, Radical, and what it do- deals with is the radicalization of one of the people who was at the Capitol on January sixth, and and it and it's uh, you find this out right at the beginning. It's a woman who died who whose name you probably don't know. I didn't know her name, know anything about her. And it's told very much through the lens of her family who are trying to figure out what happened and and in particular why her personality changed really, really dramatically in the time leading up to this. She was not uh, going into this um, the kind of person you would expect to be uh, a demonstrator at something like that, not even particularly political, certainly not particularly conservative. And, and so what it does really well, first of all, I think it's good storytelling. Uh, the ending isn't maybe as dispositive as I would have liked it to, to be, but it really does tell the story about kind of how something like this happens. And it's full of details. Like I, I feel pretty immersed in and imbued in this whole world of – uh, of QAnon stuff and, and you know just the insane belief systems that that get out there, but like I wasn't really aware that there's this whole school of thought that that this particularly expensive, I don't know why I'm laughing this expensive brand of Wayfair a uh, sub brand of Wayfair furniture uh, that has a, a person's name people's names to it, it that it contains like 
parts of sex, sex trafficked children or something. They actually believe stuff like that, that Wayfair Furniture is, is selling, you know, furniture, furniture that has like little pieces of human beings in it or something. It just the stuff that's in there that I hadn't known didn't make me happy to know, but it was really pretty fascinating and helpful in understanding some of this stuff. So we're going to, first of all, thank this panel, thank Mr. McPants, and close with Jeff Beck. We lost Jeff Beck this week at the age of, I think, 78, the great guitarist. We'll say goodbye to the nose right now. <laughs> 